The gospel reading today, which is also our sermon text, is from John 7, verse 53 through 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the gospel of the Lord. Well, we are preaching through the gospel of John and are at the place, as you just heard, where the religious leaders bring an adulterous woman to Jesus to ask him if they should stone her to death. This passage, John 7, 53 to 8, 11. Now, many biblical scholars believe this passage should not be included in scripture. And your Bible may have a notation that so indicates. So just to clarify, most conservative scholars believe this is an authentic account from the life of Jesus. Indeed, references to this incident can be found in early church writings dating back to Papias in 100 AD, still when people who were alive at the time of Christ were still living then. Indeed, Scholars also agree there's nothing in this narrative that contradicts anything else in scripture. But there still remains the valid issue of whether or not it should be part of the holy canon. So why are there any doubts at all? Well, although the passage is included in many early copies of John's gospel, the story is not found in the oldest known manuscripts that we have. Now, interestingly, two of these early codices of John, which are called L and Delta, do not include the account, but do display between John 7.52 and John 8.12 a distinct blank space as a sort of memorial left by the scribe to uh, signify remembrance of the absent text. So, indeed, the status of this passage has been controversial for a long time. Augustine, in the 5th century, believed that certain church fathers removed this passage from John because they did not like the idea 
that Jesus had forgiven an adulterous woman. He explains this in his classic work, The City of God. This is written in 426 AD. Let, let, let me quote. Certain persons of little faith, or rather enemies of the true faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives should be given impunity in sinning, removed from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, as if he who had said, sin no more, had somehow granted her permission to sin. Well, wow, <laughs> he's, he's pretty, he's pretty ad adamant about this. Well, Augustine is 1,600 years closer to the original autographs than we are. And so I think his uh, opinion does merit consideration, but I'm not a textual scholar, all right? And I don't feel I'm qualified to argue pro or con about these arg arguments of whether it should be or should not be. But there's one thing I can say with certainty. Whoever penned this narrative was well acquainted with the customs of the Jewish feasts in the first century. And whether it was John, one of his disciples, or someone else, they placed this story in the perfect position in John's gospel. There's nowhere else it could fit nearly so beautifully. And so we've decided to include this passage in our sermon series from John because it's a credible account that's really simply too heartwarming, too beautiful, and far too convicting not to be told. So whatever your view on it, whether you think it should be in the canon or you think it should be not, um, we pray you'll be blessed and you'll be encouraged at how this story leads to sound applications in our everyday life. And you can rest assured, any theological principle or spiritual concepts we bring out of this passage will be soundly backed up by other places in Scripture. So Pastor Mike and I are going to co-preach this morning. I'm going to start off now with some background on the passage, and then Mike's going to follow uh, later on with some applications. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, claim your promise that your Holy Spirit is here to teach us. And we ask that you soften our hearts, uh, remove those things from us that are keeping us from listening to your word this morning. In the name of Yeshua HaMashiach, your son Jesus. Amen. Okay, it's helpful for us to consider the location of this passage within John's gospel. In the previous section, John chapter 7, that relates what Jesus did and taught during the Feast of Booths, called Sukkot in Hebrew. Sukkot is the Thanksgiving feast that follows the fall harvest. Each family is to live in a temporary shelter, a sukkah, for seven days. And during this time, people pray for rain so that the coming year's harvest will also be plentiful. The prophets warn, though, that God's judgment will bring drought upon anyone who does not truly and honestly observe Sukkot, those who forsake the Lord, the fount of living waters. In Jesus' day, the seventh and final day of Sukkot, which was called Hoshana Rabbah, which means the day of great supplication, that day saw huge jugs of water taken from the Pool of Siloam, carried up the Temple Mount, and dumped out as a guilt offering to the Lord, all right? And then, 
certain passages from the prophets would be read. These would include, for example, Isaiah 55, 1. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Isaiah 58, 11. You will become a watered garden, rivers of living water that do not fail. So with that as background, John's account of what Jesus said on Hoshana Rabbah becomes especially relevant to our passage today. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Hoshana Rabbah, Jesus stood up and cried out, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus thus identified himself as the Messiah and as the one who fulfills Sukkot. John records then that a lively discussion followed about whether really Jesus was the Messiah, and the debate ends in John 7:52 with the leader saying, Jesus could not possibly be from God since, quote, no scripture predicts a prophet coming out of Galilee. But they were mistaken. There is such a scripture. And it relates Messiah to Sukkot. Isaiah 9, 1 to 3. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest. That's Sukkot. John 7:52 thus implies that they rejected the Messiah, the fount of living waters, on the final day of Sukkot. Our passage then for today immediately follows on that same evening. John 7:53. After this, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early the next morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him an assembly, remember this. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. This little transitional explanation identifies the Jewish celebration upon which this episode with the woman took place. It occurs on the day after Sukkot. That is the day that follows Hoshana Rabbah. This day is known as Shemini Atzeret, which means rejoicing in the Torah. Sorry, it means the assembly of the eighth day, Shemini Atzeret. It is a special holy day in Judaism. When God told Israel to come together each year for the Feast of Booths, he also commanded the assembly of the eighth day to follow the day after that. Leviticus 23, 33. And the Lord said to Moses, then verse 34, on the 15th day of the seventh month, and for seven days is to be the feast of booths to the Lord. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. We heard that phrase in Joel this morning, too, a solemn assembly. 
This assembly of the eighth day remained very important throughout Israel's history. For example, after the temple was rebuilt, right after the captivity in Babylon, Nehemiah 8.14, they found it written that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now down to verse 17. And the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. Verse 18. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. I once told Rabbi Katz that I was going to teach about Sukkot, including Shemini Atzeret. He said, he scolded me. David! Shemini Atzeret is not part of Sukkot. He was right. It's not. <laughs> okay. Sukkot lasts seven days. At Sukkot's end, on sundown of the seventh day, everyone returns to their home, not to a sukkah shelter. Thus, John 7.53 notes this. Everyone went to his own house. The feast of booths was over. The next day would be the assembly of the eighth day. And John 8, 1 records that this is when Jesus returned to the temple for Shemini Atzeret. As a crowd gathered in assembly, Jesus began to teach. So what's significant about Shemini Atzeret? Well, the people rejoice in the Torah, that is in the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the assembly honors women. How, how does this happen? Shemini Atzeret includes a celebration known as Simchat Torah, which means rejoicing in the Torah. On that day and that special ceremony, the Torah scroll is blessed by a woman. And the liturgical set of Torah readings for the following year begins. You see, in general, only a man is allowed to do the Aliyah, the blessing on the Torah, with two exceptions. A bride may say the Aliyah, on her wedding day. And a woman, says Aliyah, on Shemini Atzeret, the assembly of the eighth day. This is important because the atonement of Yom Kippur, which was just five days before Sukkot, is sealed on the seventh day of Sukkot. And after this, the eighth day, remember eight's the number of renewal in scripture, all Israel assembles to celebrate renewed forgiveness as they look to the coming agricultural season, anticipating living water that will bring them abundant crops for the year. What could be more symbolic of a renewal, of a new birth for a new year, than a woman blessing the Torah? So our narrative for today transpires on Shemini Atzeret, the day after the religious leaders rejected the Lord, the fount of living waters, a day set aside to rejoice in the Torah and to honor women. It is a day chosen to launch a forgiven people towards the new life, a new birth, and a new year of blessings from God. With that said, we move to the heart of our story, John 8, 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, that is, of the assembly, they said to Jesus, Rabbi, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, that means the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Sadly, on a day set aside to honor women and to rejoice in the Torah, they choose to condemn a woman with the Torah. We caught her in the very act, eyebrows raised, let's kill her. Besides trying to condemn her with the Torah, they tried to discredit Jesus by wielding the Torah as a weapon. You see, if Jesus did not agree to stone the woman, they'd say, aha, he does not respect God's law, he can't be the Messiah. If on the other hand, he said they should stone the woman, then they would accuse him of sedition against Rome, and he would be arrested by officers of a regime that allowed no one other than themselves to use the death penalty. I have found it to be generally the case that when someone uses the Bible to attack another person, the attacker tends to pick and choose their Bible verses, leaving out crucial and important elements of God's word. That is the case here. Consider the passage from the Torah that the leaders refer to in claiming they should stone this woman. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both of them shall die, the man who slept with the woman and the woman. We now see their duplicity. The man is mysteriously missing from this picture. They said they caught the woman in the act. You would think that the man must have been there. The Torah requires that he be present for this trial, but he is clearly absent. Now, Jesus might have called them out for not pursuing the man and producing him here, but our Messiah didn't do that. Rather, he did something entirely unexpected and utterly profound. John 8, 6, second half of that verse. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. And as they all continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the dirt. I, I can just imagine them all shouting as they demand that Jesus answer immediately. But he calmly ignores their cry, stoops down, begins to etch in the dirt. After a long, reflective pause, he stands up straight, looks into their eyes. No, actually, he looked deeper than that. He looked into their souls. And then, with the complete authority, as the Messiah, the Son of God, he offers them a challenge. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And then he stoops down and starts to write in the dirt again. People have long speculated as to what it was Jesus might have written in the dirt that day. Whatever it was, it had a very profound effect on those in the crowd. After he said, let him without sin cast the first stone and then stoop down to write some more in the dirt, the Holy Spirit brought a conviction upon the men that swept through the crowd like a powerful tsunami. John 8, 9, when they truly heard and understood this, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. The oldest and most seasoned were the first to comprehend what Jesus implied, and they walked away ashamed. Soon those who were younger and cockier also felt the weight of their sin, and they followed suit. Although no one knows exactly what Jesus wrote, we have an idea based on the observance of the Jewish feasts. Beginning with the second temple era back in Nehemiah and continuing right up till today in modern times, there is one scripture always read on Hoshana Rabbah, the day just before Shemini Yatzeret. That verse was fresh on the hearts of those who this day condemn the woman. It is Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be publicly shamed, and they shall be made to walk away because of their sins. And all those that walk away from you shall have their names written in the dirt, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fount of living waters. My son was studying Hebrew. Young Israel, he called me and said, Dad, you won't believe the scripture that's always read on Hashanah Rabbah. He read it to me and I knew immediately what it was about. Those who on Sukkot had forsaken the Lord, the fount of living waters, now on the assembly of the eighth day walked away ashamed because of their sins. But their names and their sins perhaps remained there etched in the dry, dusty earth. And that left only the woman and Jesus alone, together on Shemini Atzeret. John 8, verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one stayed to condemn you? She said, No one is left, Lord, by implication, except you. <laughs> Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, the only one who could justifiably have thrown that first stone, did not condemn her. He rather forgave her and told her to sin no more. John mentioned this earlier in his gospel, for John 3.17, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. She, like all of us, deserved death. We deserve death for our sin. But the Lord offers forgiveness. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. On the assembly of the eighth day, a day of secured atonement, a day of renewal, this precious daughter of Abraham was honored with a new forgiven life. And I imagine she pronounced a blessing on God's living word as she went away rejoicing. In chapter 7 of his letter to the church in Rome, 
Our brother Paul has been explaining that if we try to come to God by keeping his law, we will inevitably fail. We will sin. We will break the law because of our own moral weakness. And so we are condemned to death. But Christ has fulfilled the law for us. Hallelujah. And he has sent also his Holy Spirit to live in us and enable us for keeping the law. So now in chapter 8 of Romans, hear the gospel of life for those who come to God, not by the law, but by faith in Christ. Romans 8 Verses 1 through 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the wonderful word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think it was somewhat providential that I was only preaching half a sermon today because I have half a voice. So we're going to try to get through this. Um, But I also wanted nobody else but Dave to be 
preaching through this, this passage with, uh, after we sat down for coffee and talked about it, I thought, well, I want you preaching this. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. Now, one of the most popular phrases used in our culture is actually found in this passage that, we, that Dave was just preaching on. You've heard it many times. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. You know, it's used in some other form throughout different conversations. Well, I have no stones to throw, or he's got no stones to throw. The reason the verse is used so much is to justify one's own actions. To remind others in the crowd that they have no right to judge or condemn me or someone else. Because we're all imperfect, right? We're all sinners. And usually to reinforce that, we like the other phrase from Jesus in Matthew 7 where he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. And we throw that in kind of as, a, as, as something to top it all off. Kind of coming to the conclusion that Jesus never called us to judge one another. But the fact is, if you read more in Matthew 7... And if you go back to where we were in John, in John chapter 7, where, where uh, Noah was preaching, the point is to judge with right judgment. It's not, the point of this story is not to overlook the sins of others. This sin of adultery was a condemnable sin. It was a real sin, and it deserved death, just like the sin of the Pharisees. So don't make light of the sin of adultery in this passage. That's not the point. The point is what Jesus is teaching us through the accusers and the accused and through the grace that he gave. Actually, he showed to both parties. It's about Jesus calling us to judge with right judgment. Because you see, He's calling, us to have, he's calling us to have this responsibility to judge rightly because we also have a responsibility of that judgment to begin with ourselves, to look at our own hearts. Why is that? Because we see ourselves for who we are, and then we approach the sins of others with the same fear, trembling, and humility with which we approach our own sins. So we have the accuser and the accused, and it's my belief that we, we all have something in common with both parties in this story. And I believe that in this, the application of this passage is Jesus is calling us to recognize the plank that is in our own eye. He's calling us to repent of our sin. And he's calling us to receive the forgiveness that is offered through him. He's calling us to recognize the plank. One of the, one of the thing about the leaders is that, is that notice, as Dave said, they didn't bring both the man and the woman before Jesus. They brought only the woman. You see, they had a particular people group that they felt the license to condemn, the license to use for their gain. They thought of them as less than human, perhaps. Definitely less than themselves. 
Instead of seeking to bring her back, this one who had gone astray, as Ezekiel, by the way, prophesies against the shepherds of God's people, God's sheep. He says, you have failed to, to bring back the ones who have gone astray. You have failed to bind up the wounded. You have failed to heal the sick. You have failed to feed the hungry. He's calling on the shepherds of the people, these people right here who are bringing this woman before Jesus. They're doing it for their own gain. And they're doing it with somebody they consider less than themselves. Now, I said that we all kind of identify with both parties here. Let me ask you to take some time to reflect. What is that people group for you? You know, we all have people groups that we consider kind of free to make fun of, free to condemn. Homosexuals, MAGA Republicans, liberal Democrats, fundamentalist Christians, the illegal immigrant, the poor, the prisoner, backwoods, uneducated person. And that list can go on. Did I hit anything in your heart? And if not, ask the Lord to reveal that to you because we all have it. I do. And I know we all do. The problem is that we take, we tend to take our cues from the news media from social media, from popular culture, and also from our own tribes, which I think inform us the most. Those tribes, those people who are close to us, who, who hang out, who we hang out with, and, and who we identify with. We all kind of have those people groups that we agree they're okay to make fun of, they're okay to condemn, they're okay to hate. Let me give you a, a a little of my own experience with this. I might have shared this with you before, but I'm gonna share it because I think it's very relevant. Many of you know I've, I'm divorced. Um, back in 1995, I, uh, I was, uh, went through a divorce. I'm happy to answer questions about that if anybody has any questions, but um, I was a very self-righteous person. And having that word divorce associated with me did not sit well. And I was longing to see my ex-wife condemned because honestly, I didn't have anything to do with it. And it was my dear wife, Christy, who on one of our dates, when she was considering, do I get closer to this guy or not? She asked me a very poignant question. She said, so what is your role? What is your responsibility for this divorce? And I immediately thought to myself, I already told you I'm not responsible for this. And I continued to think that. 
because what that did was that gave me the license to continue to condemn her, to continue con to condemn my ex-wife and tell everybody else what a bad person she was and not recognizing that I had a responsibility in this. And when I had a responsibility, when I recognized the responsibility in this, two things happened. Number one, I recognized that I'm just as bad as her. I'm just as messed up as her in this place. And she does not deserve my condemnation. And secondly, I recognized the grace of God that was available to her and to me. And to live in that grace. And I'm telling you, that was a turning point in my life for understanding the grace of God. To be okay with who I am and what I went through. And not to look at everybody else who went through a divorce and wonder what they did wrong. But to learn to have compassion on them. I have a long way to go with other people and other groups. But that was a way that God awakened me to, to his grace like I've never experienced he revealed the plank in my eye. And when he revealed that plank in my eye, then he calls me to repent, to remove that plank. And he did that with this, with this woman. He said, go and sin no more. But you want to know what else he did? He revealed it to the accusers as well. You know, his time writing in the sand, as David said, you know, make, I, I love the, 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 the application of Jeremiah 17 there. I think it's amazing. The bottom line is whatever he wrote there revealed something to those accusers. Because do you know, the, 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 the ones that had to cast the first stone were the actual witnesses. The witnesses were required to cast the first stone. Now they were there and they saw it. But what Jesus wrote in that sand, and his look on them revealed some serious planks, I believe. Some serious planks, but what did they do with those planks? What did they do with that? They walked away. They left. Jesus says in John 7, before you go and try to correct your brother, Take a speck out of their eye. Remove the plank in your own eye. It's hyperbole. It's saying, consider this huge plank that you have to deal with while you're trying to go move out a little speck. Look at yourself. And he gave them a view of their own hearts, but they obviously couldn't deal with it and left. They recognized they could no longer condemn her, but they didn't want to come to Jesus. He revealed the planks in their own eyes. And then he says to repent. John writes later in his first letter, he says, if we confess our sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive. Look, take time today, this week, pray to the Father that he would reveal to you through his spirit who the groups of people are, who you have such a hard time loving. I was talking to Christy about this. She reminded me of the, of the, of the verse that where Jesus, where, where Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what difference is that? The pagans do that. Everybody does that. How hard is that? Right? 
It's loving the people that you cannot stand. Because there is no power within you and me to do that. It only comes through the power of God's spirit. And that's why it's so amazing. That's why it's so unique in our world. May God help us to love one another, but also to love those who are so difficult for us to love. May he change our hearts and turn our hearts to love him and to love those he puts in our lives no matter who they are. To love them with the love of Christ. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. As it says in John 17, and David mentioned that earlier, to save from the condemnation of the sin that we all are under. And this woman felt that condemnation. Yes, her sin was wrong, but then she was brought and shamed in front of Jesus, in front of all of the, the, the people who were there. She felt that shame, but she did not walk away. She had an opportunity right there when they were all leaving. She clung to the Savior. Because I believe at that point, she knew that was her only salvation. And she received the forgiveness that was given to her right then when Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. She knew she was condemnable. She knew that she was worthy to be condemned. But Jesus said, I'm the only one who can throw that stone, but I don't condemn you. I love you. But go now and don't do this again. He sent her away with a new sense of obedience, saying that there's new life. You can go from here and live differently now because I've forgiven you and I've given you new life. Go in that. He makes all things new. That day, I believe, he made her brand new. And his love and his compassion and his gospel is there to make every one of us brand new. Let's follow him. Let's call on him. Let's allow him to reveal those huge, ugly planks in our eyes and let's freely confess them to him, give them to him, and receive his forgiveness that is so free to all of us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that you have mercy on all of us in our most wicked times that you have mercy on us. Help us to see that mercy, to repent, and to follow you. Amen.